the book of Jonah again, uh, part two here. Uh, and we're talking about the God who relentlessly pursues us. God pursues us, the living God, and the living God comes after us. And thank the Lord that he does, because if he never came after us, if he never came after us, we would never, ever go after him. We don't have the ability, nor would we ever want to come after him. And so it's the Lord's pursuit of us as he comes after us, as he opens up our eyes to see the greatness of God, that we then pant and run after him. We ended by talking about Jonah, this prayer, as he was in the belly of this great fish. And it was mentioned that he was really giving up on life. He was, he was saying, I'm, I'm done with life. You can, uh, you can go ahead. I'm so upset with my life. I want to die. And there have been moments in lives of people where they say, I would rather die than live. And this is Jonah's mentality. Life had gotten so tough with him and, and, uh, and so fraught with, with trouble. His, his mind was troubled about this call of God on his life. He was bothered about going to this great city of Nineveh. And he said, you know what? It's, it's just better if you toss me overboard and, and I die. And of course, that's not a, a good uh, attitude. That's not a good place to be in for anybody. For somebody to be saying, God, just, just take me out. That's, that's where I want to be. By the way, Elijah, uh, the prophet, also was like that. When he said, God, I, I just want to die too. He had gotten so depressed and he just wanted to just end it all. Interestingly there, God laid him down, made him take a nap. So he got rested and uh, got some food, and he started to uh, feel a little bit better. But there is something here, too, of a positive lesson from this, in the sense that before we can finally come after God, we must die to ourselves. There must come a point in our life where we say, God, I have been controlling my life for too long. I have been the master of what I have been wanting to do. I have been running from you. I have been trying to do it on my own. And by the way, this isn't only for the unbeliever, but even Christians in different moments in their life, they can come to the place where they are just simply trying because they're getting away from fellowship with the Lord. They're running away from the call of God on their life to where they just say, you know what, I'm going to just do this in the flesh. I'm going I'm to do it in my own strength. I'm going to just struggle along. And there has to come a point where we as believers, where we get on our knees and we say to God, God, would you help me again to die to myself? Lord, I recognized at one point in my life that you needed to be Lord overall. You cannot be a, a person who is a Christian. You cannot be saved until you come to the place in your life where you say, Jesus Christ, I, I need you and I receive you as Lord. But what is done at the beginning must be done in practice over and over again in our lives, where day by day we are dying to ourselves, where we are giving up uh, the desires of the flesh, where we are saying after three years and 10 years and 20 years in the Christian faith, Lord, help me to deal with this in my life and help me not to just struggle along in my sin, 
Lord, I understand that there's going to be sin in my life for the rest of my life, but Lord, help me, help me to come to a place over matter after matter where I'm literally dying to my flesh, where I'm dying to sin. This is the call of God. So when Jonah is, is thrown overboard, we talked about him being lifted up. We talked about Jesus, if I be lifted up, this symbolic figure, and he is thrown overboard. In essence, he is saying, I give up. And that is, uh, that is the pathway to true freedom, is when we come to the place in our life where we just say, Lord, I give up. I give up. Lord, I, I am not strong enough. I can't do this in my own strength. So, Lord, I'm coming to you for your power. I'm not going to try to add a little bit to this whole thing. It's not going to be, well, God, you're my co-pilot, and we're going to steer this thing together. It's, Lord, I just drop to my knees, and I say, Lord, you be all my strength. You give me the endurance that I need. God, you help me to crucify the flesh. What areas in our life is the Lord putting his finger on saying, this thing needs to die? It doesn't need to just be kind of given up for a little bit. This is not something where it's just easy. But this is something where the Lord is, is putting his finger on certain things in all of our lives, and he's saying this thing needs to be put to death once and for all. It needs to be uh, thrown into the sea of death. It needs to be thrown overboard so that I can then begin to take your life and mold it and use it for my glory so it's no longer you going along in the flesh, you trying and struggling and moving along in your own power, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And there comes a point where we need to receive. Listen, we have heard about the sovereignty of God. He is the one who comes after us. He is the one who initiates the whole thing. He is, he is the one who gives us the new birth. He is the one who gives us life. That's all true. But we must receive. And yes, it's a spirit-empowered, spirit-life-given receiving, but we still must receive. So there comes a point where it's not just like, well, God can do whatever he wants, and if he, if he wants to do something in my life, and we have crossed arms and, and folded minds and hardened hearts, and we just say, Lord, if you want to do this in my life, you're, you're God, you can, listen, that's a bad, rebellious spirit. But when we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I know that you're working in my life. I need your mercy. I need to be thrown overboard here. I understand that the problem is me. Jonah's waving his hand and he's going, folks, the problem's me. I'm the problem. When we get to that point and when we say, Lord, I will receive from you with whatever it is that you have for me, God, throw me overboard. Throw me overboard. Lord, send me. I will go anywhere you want me to go. Lord, uh, use humility in my life. I will uh, stay wherever you want me to stay. Lord, I will wait on you whenever you call me to wait on you. That is exactly what I'll do. I will wait on you. But it's coming to an end of ourself, and it's coming to a point of where we are saying, the self must die. The self must die. Would you say that with me? The self must die. Let's say that again. The self must die. See, a lot of, a lot of uh, religions and and uh, philosophies are based upon you finding yourself, you asserting yourself, you, you promoting yourself, you getting out there and saying, I've got to find me. I've got to be me. The call to Christianity is much different. The call to Christianity is not you must find yourself. The call to Christianity is you must die to yourself. Totally different philosophy. 
well, if, if only if I had my dreams and I, I went after these things and uh, all, of, all of the things that I want in life were fulfilled, then, then I would finally find myself and I would, be, I would just be happy and content. Person after person goes after their own dreams and their own flesh. Or they run from God and they say, God, we don't need you. We don't, we don't want you or we don't want you to touch this area of our lives. And we come to the, to the end of that road and we go, we're no better off than we were six months ago. We're no better off than we were a year ago. Somebody says, well, I've gotten a better job. I've, I've uh, made a lot more money, better relationships, whatever. But until a person can come to a place where they say, God, I need to die. When a person is ready at that moment, God breathes in. All of a sudden, hope is found. The restoration of the Lord comes. The peace that only comes from the Holy Spirit floods into a person's soul. But you must be willing to die, and you must be willing to receive the grace of God. Listen, if you're, if you're seated here and you've been talking or thinking a lot about the sovereignty of God, and you're going, that's me, I need to die to myself, then do it. Then do it. Receive this morning the grace of God. Don't wait anymore. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of the rebellion. So a person is going, well, God, God's sovereign. God's going to do it. Yes, God does it all, but it's through his strength and through his might that we respond properly. This is so clearly taught through all the scriptures. So Jonah is, in a sense, there's a bad way of looking at his, his death. It's, it's sad. It's morbid. It's him just saying, I'm, I'm self-pity. You know, I'm no, I'm no good anymore. I've run from God. Just kill me. That kind of attitude is also filled. That attitude is filled with pride. But we can also look at this from a different perspective of Jonah having to come to an end of himself and having to come to the place in his life where he says, God, I need you desperately, and so I need to die to myself. Look with me in John chapter 12, please. John chapter 12, verse 24. John chapter 12, verse 24 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Notice verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Oh, God, cause these words to spring forth in our soul. Whoever love his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life, for my sake, Jesus said, you will find it. You will find your life. Listen, you can have the best teaching on about how to live in this life. You can have all of the practical tips. You can have somebody come along and say, this is what needs to be done, and this is what needs to be done. Here's how to be a good husband. Here's how to be a good man. Here's how to be a good mother. Here's how to be a good wife. Here's how to be a good brother. Here's how to be a good sister. Here's how to be a good uh, child or grandparent or whatever. We go through the list of, of all those practical things that, listen, we desperately need. But all of that, all of that, uh, welcome. We're so glad you're here. All of that, all of that, uh, all of those the practical things that we so desperately need, listen, will not amount to a hill of beans. I don't know why we say that. Who says that? doesn't mean anything. We're not farmers. Well, maybe some of us are. I have family members who are farmers. Anyway, it might mean something. It won't amount to a hill of beans, okay? Until, until 
we die to ourselves. You never forget when I was in college, the killing of me that God was doing still does to this day. But he, he puts us in place, places, as we saw last week, where he corners us. It's God who brought the storm. And here God is, is chasing after Jonah. Jonah thinks he's running from God. He's getting away from the presence of God. He's right within the sovereign plan of God the whole time. God is the one ultimately causing him to do exactly what he's doing so that he's put in a situation where he has to say to God, God, I need you. And if you've never been in that place before, may God bring it into your life. And oftentimes it's very painful. Listen, there are people who go through uh, most of life with very little pain. They serve their idols and they make sure that everything in their life is fit and, and just tidy in certain ways. But they've never really suffered. They've never experienced the cornering of God where he puts us on the ship where he gets us to the place where we say, throw me overboard. And it's in that moment of saying, throw me overboard, where the verses that Jesus is talking about, where he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it must die. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You want to bear much fruit in your life? You got to die. You want to be a good mother? You want to be a good father? You want to be a good child, grandparent, whatever? You've got to die first. And all of those other things come after that. Everything else comes after that. It comes after a relationship with the Lord of continually dying to ourselves. Look with me at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says this. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin. You mean as a believer, Paul? I thought that happened when we were justified. Well, that's true. God justifies us. He declares us righteous in his sight once and for all. We, we understand. Listen very carefully. I've had people over years of ministry have struggled with this concept that think that because they sin, they get saved, and then they blow it, and we all blow it, and we blow it big at times. And there are people who think that, well, I've got to keep getting resaved. No, no, no. Listen, the life of a Christian is full of sin. And so what Paul is doing here is he is, He's giving us Jonah moments in our life. He is saying to the believer, not to the non-believer, not every message is just come to Jesus Christ for the first time. He is telling the believer, he is saying, if you want to be uh, uh, fruitful in the Christian life, you want to be a fruitful Christian, you must continually consider yourself dead to sin. You must see yourself as a Christian over and over in your life, and this is why we have to keep coming back to this verse. we got to keep going, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive in Christ, but I'm dead to sin. I don't feel dead to sin. I see sin in the flesh. I see the things I'm doing. It's not right. Paul says the things I don't want to do, I do. Have you ever done that? You're going, I don't want to do this. Why do I keep doing this? Or you say, I want to do certain things. I want to do certain things. I want to pray more. I want, to, I want to be kinder, whatever the case may be. I want to do that more. And then you find yourself not doing it. And Paul keeps coming back to us and he keeps saying to us, listen, it's not that you're not saved. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a love for Jesus? Do you have a desire for him? Listen, if somebody comes and says, I have a desire for the Lord, I love the Lord, but they're struggling in some kind of sin, listen, it doesn't mean that person is not saved. 
It means that that person is struggling. The, the, the question of if we know we're saved is if there's a love for Jesus, if we have a hunger for him. If there's really not much hunger or zero hunger for the Lord, there's no desire for him. There's been no brokenness of, of uh, spirit before the Lord. And that person needs to come to the Lord. But if a person is broken, if a person gets to the Jonah moment over and over and over again in their life where they're just saying, Lord, I need you. Paul's saying this, consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin. Look with me at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been, Paul's again, I have been crucified with Christ. That's something. Paul is saying, I, I was when Jesus was nailed to the cross, all those who believe have been nailed to the cross with him. That old person has died. So he's not saying, I physically got up on the cross and died with Jesus. He's saying, all of my sins have been paid for. That desire to sin, that uh, power of sin that, was, uh, that held me captive, that power that just kept me enslaved to sin. Listen, the scripture says we are, we are slaves to sin, so we keep coming back to it. We keep coming back to it. Listen, the moment somebody is saved, the power of sin is broken, and that power continues to be broken in the Christian's life. Someday we're going to be saved from the complete presence of sin. No more sin. What a thought. Heaven. No more sin. Complete holiness. Complete joy forever. But on the cross, Jesus paid for the penalty of sin. And we are constantly being delivered from the power of sin. And someday we're going to be saved completely from the presence of sin. So we have the penalty, we have the power, and we have the presence of sin. And he is saying this. He's saying, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What does a Christian like look like? It looks like a person who is following after Jesus. Somebody who is saying, I'm crucified with Christ. I have been nailed to the cross, nailed to the cross with Jesus. Sometimes maybe we just need to look at a cross and just say, you know, I have been up on that cross. I was nailed to the cross with Christ. The old person has been crucified. And that offers great hope because it says to us we can change if he is, because of the cross, constantly breaking the power of sin over our life, it means that what we are today is not what we were a year ago. And uh, it's not what we were 10 years ago or at the beginning of our life. But we have to come to the point of where we say to ourselves, throw me overboard. Lord, help me to have the flesh crucified. That's what this is saying. So he says this. Been crucified with Christ is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Jonah has been running and he finally gives up. In many ways, not a good way, but in many ways, a good way. We're looking at it from the perspective of being crucified with Christ. So here he is belly of a great fish, called to preach to Nineveh, this great city of hundreds of thousands of people. It's a scary and an awesome task. Where do you start? And it's possible, it's interesting, they worship this fish god. And so Jonah 
was just spent three days in a fish. It's a long time to be in a fish, alive. And he's in there, he's just crying out to the Lord. Oh God, help me. God, help me. And so finally this fish vomits him up onto the beach somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. And it's quite possible that now because of all the acids in the fish's uh, stomach that he is bleached white. What a sight he must have been. Smelly, gross, bleached. So he has a long journey. And the Bible says that the Lord doesn't give up on Jonah. He doesn't give up on Jonah. There are times when we, the Lord comes to us and we think he's just going to come to us once in his mercy and in his kindness. He's going to come to us once. But the Bible tells us very clearly here that God doesn't just come once. Notice what it says here in chapter 3 of Jonah. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. So grateful for the second times. The Lord doesn't just give us one chance. He gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to him. The second chances in our life, the whole Bible, if you read the Bible and you begin to see throughout the whole of Scripture that the Bible is a book about second and third and infinite chances. You take Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything is perfect. Nothing is wrong. Everything is great. There's no sin. They're well fed. It's paradise. And they sin. God could have said, you know what? That's it. The justice of God says it's over for you. You have, you've had your chance. You've not uh, passed the test. You've not met the standards. And therefore, I'm going to kick you out of the garden. Not only kick you out of the garden, but I'm not going to give you any more chances. But God does the exact opposite. He slaughters an animal and he clothes them with skins showing them that someday there would be another substitute who would come, who would be their ultimate substitution, giving them a second chance. And over and over again, we read in the scriptures from that point on, of God not only coming to people one time, but he coming to them again and again and again in their Christian life because he loves us. He loves us. And so he doesn't just come to us once and say, well, I'm going to give you one chance, and if you uh, do a good job, well, then good for you. But we blow it, and it comes a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time. And he even comes to us in great ways when we feel like there's no possible way that he can make it right out of a wrong. You say, God, you came, we heard your voice so clearly we knew exactly what you were saying to us. We heard you speaking to us. We know that. But Lord, instead of listening to you, we didn't listen. We loved you. But somehow in the Christian life, we began to drift away from your voice. And instead of listening to you as good children should, we, we didn't listen to you. And we have now turned our back on you and uh, suffering the consequences of that. God, is there any way... Is there any way that you can bring hope out of this situation? James Montgomery Boyce gives an excellent story, illustration about second chances. And he writes this. He was um, a pastor who was the um, preacher of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Godly man. And he was the one who died in his uh, early 60s, maybe 15, 15 years ago or so. 63, 64 years old, something like that. 
been a marvelous preacher, marvelous theologian, marvelous lover of the scriptures. And he was the one when people would say to him, why would somebody like you, why would God allow cancer to come into your life? This is before he died. And his response was always, why not me? Why not me? That was, that was the godliness of this man. That was the, the kind of uh, thinking that he had. But he writes this about second chances in regard especially to this whole narrative with, with Jonah. And he says this, A number of years ago, a girl in Philadelphia felt the call of God to Christian service. But she married a non-Christian who soon left her to go his own way. So this is a this is a Christian. This is not a non-Christian who gets into a relationship with a non-Christian. He goes on to say, the experience brought the girl back to desiring God's will. You can you can hear the heart in that. You get into a situation. This is what we're talking about: the cornering of God. God has a way of cornering us, and so we begin as Christians. We're like, God, I need you. That's what's that's what's going on here. So. Uh, the experience brought the girl back to desiring God's will. But what was she to do? Should she divorce her husband? The scriptures taught that she should not follow this course. According to 1 Corinthians 7, she was to be open to any possible reconciliation. She decided to leave the matter in God's hands. Having confessed her sin, she let her separated husband know that she was open to reconciliation if he desired it. When he declined, she let the matter rest. Within a few months, her husband was killed in a car accident, and God directed her to apply to Wycliffe Bible Translators for missionary work. The word of the Lord clearly came to her a second time. So there are times in our lives where we're going, God, how can this work? And what God is saying to us is this, if you will crucify the flesh, and you will do what I'm calling you to do, I'll take care of the rest. If you will just be faithful in the things that I've called you to do, you will be amazed at the way that the Lord will work in our lives. And he doesn't just come to us a first time. He doesn't just come to us a second time. But he's able to come to us over and over again and restore the relationship. And as we are receiving from him, as we're coming to him saying, Lord, I need you, his mercy is poured out to us new every day. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the faithfulness of God. The God who comes to us in the bottom of the ocean when we are in the middle of uh, living in the, the guts of a fish that he spits us out and he says, I'm going to still use you. Listen, his callings, the Bible says, his callings and his gifts are without repentance. When he calls, when he equips, when he says he's going to do something in our lives, listen, he is going to find a way to accomplish his will. Now, I want you to notice what goes on here. Look with me at chapter 3 again. So he says, arise and go to that great city. Now, this city is huge, has a hundreds of thousands of people. The walls of it were so thick that they used to have chariots run around the top of this thing. So you can imagine as Jonah is going and he's, he's called to preach. 
And we don't tamper with God. Listen, listen. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord. If you're seated here and you're tampering with God, don't do it. If you're, if you're, if you're thinking, well, I can just get away with this. I don't need to die to myself. I, I don't need to do this. Listen, heed the illustration that was just given. Heed the message of Jonah that God will accomplish his purposes and it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. The scripture also says this, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. Listen, the Lord doesn't owe us one more day. He doesn't owe us one more day. He doesn't owe us tomorrow. He doesn't owe us 10 years from now. He doesn't owe us anything. So we need to respond to him as we are listening to him. So as he is called to this uh, huge city, the question is where to start. Okay, I'm called to the city. No microphones. He shows up. He's walking. How do you preach to hundreds of thousands of people who are obstinate against God, hard of heart, don't want to listen, have no desire to listen? There's nothing. Where do you even begin? No media. No, uh, no printing press. This is before Gutenberg. I mean, this is a long time ago. This is before all of that. Nothing. I remember when we were first called here, and it is a calling of God, called here to this church. And I remember thinking to myself, where do I start? Where do I, who do I talk to? How, how do I talk to people? But there was the call of God, and Jonah must have, Jonah must have felt that to some degree of where do I go? How do I say this? What am I going to do? And it's his enemies. And these people are, as we saw, violent people. So he said, um, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, verse 2, and call out against it. The message that I tell you. Now that's important. Here's what, a, here's what God comes and he says to preachers to do. He says, all I want you to do is I want you to give, get up, and I want you to preach what's in this. That's it. You're not to make the preaching about yourself. You're not to make the preaching just to tickle people's ears. You are, you are to preach. And as you're to preach, the only thing you're allowed to preach, because this is not motivational speaking 101. This is not any of that. This is simply God saying, I want you to get up and I simply want you to deliver my message. In other words, this isn't you coming up with something, thinking of a good message, and then going to Nineveh and saying, okay, I've got this great message that I came up with uh, the other night. God strictly tells Jonah, he says, I want you to get up, and I want you to go to that great city, and I want you to preach the message that I have given to you. That's all I want you to speak. That's what we need. It's a message from God. That's, that's the great need. That's the great need of the church today. That's the great need of people. That's the great need of pastors. Listen, we are in desperate need of that for obedient people to just say, all I'm able to declare is the word of God because I'm simply his servant and I've been commissioned with a message from God to deliver to the people. So he says, Here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to call out against it. That means a message of judgment. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, 
By the way, there's scholars that go, well, we found Nineveh, we've excavated it, and it's, it's uh, about seven miles across, and it doesn't take somebody three days to get across that. Listen, every time we begin to hear that kind of liberal type of thinking, every time we need to go with the Bible. The Bible says it was three days' journey. And if the Bible says it, you know how many times where people have said, well, that's impossible, and then all of a sudden archaeology has proven the Bible absolutely true? Amazing, over and over and over again. So there have been different solutions. People have said, well, the walls were only so far apart, huge walls around this whole city, um, but that in peacetime that the suburbs, people would have spread out uh, further than just the, the interior part of living within the walls, and so maybe when Jonah's talking about three days here, he's talking about how the people have spread out into suburbs and out into the fields that they didn't have to worry about enemies as much. And so when you're talking about the suburbs of a city and you have to travel across that, it's a lot longer getting through the suburbs on this end of town than through the city, which, by the way, many scholars talk about it being crowded. Can you imagine going through a crowded city? That takes a long time. And then... Uh, by the way, Rick and I and um, uh, Lydia a number of months ago went to New York City to hear a, a pastor, and we walked all over the place, and we kept walking back and forth. And anyway, I was dragging them all over the place. We were getting tired. But it's amazing how you can walk and walk and walk and walk, and uh, it takes a long time sometimes to get to different places. So you think about him going through the suburbs, going through the city, going through the other suburbs, going east, west, north, and south. This is a a long time, and to preach to them, one guy, one guy. And so he's called to simply go into the city and preach. So when the Bible says it's three days' journey, guess what? It is, it is three days' journey. That's what it means. And uh, Calvin said that all we need to do when we come to the Scripture, that the meaning of the Scripture is the clear and simple meaning of the Scripture. That is, we don't need somebody to come in and, and, and decode the Bible for us every, every time. All we need so the Bible, we open it up, it says three days, then we simply say it's three days. Now notice what he says, verse 4. So Jonah began to go out into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's not a very long sermon. That's it. You would think that if uh, God was going to call a preacher somewhere, it would be a much more detailed, exquisite, excellent, eloquent sermon. But that's not what it was. It was simply this message of, listen, guys, here's the message from the Lord. Here's all I've been given from the Lord. Forty days, this city is going to be overthrown. That's it. Now, here's what's amazing, how effective the Word of God is. The power of the Word of God, even in a simple message, can strike the heart so deep when it's the voice of God calling us that it doesn't take perpetual dripping. It doesn't take constant pounding. That the Lord can speak to our hearts. If he wants to cause a revival here in this city, he could cause it like that. He could drop uh, such a, a sense of his power in this place right now if he wanted to. This place could be packed out in five seconds if it was God causing revival. He could do that. And that's what we pray for. That's why, that's why we pray to God. We're saying, oh God, would you do something? And we say our message is very simple. It's just the message of the cross that Jesus Christ is our substitute. He was the one who was thrown into the sea of death and sin for us. That's the message of, of Jonah. That's the message of Jesus. So we just trust him. 
But revival is not based upon the eloquence of the preacher. Revival is not based upon how many things we can jam into a speech or how long we talk to a person. Augustine's mother, back, Augustine was a, a mighty church father, but he, uh, he'd run from God, lived with a, a woman for a long time, not his wife, had a child out of wedlock, one of the mightiest men of God in the last 2,000 years. But his mother was a praying mother. She's actually known in the Catholic Church as Saint Monica, but she was. She was a godly woman. And she cried out night and day for her son. She cried out night and day. And she even followed him to the ends of the earth to, to come after him with the message of Christ. But at one point in her life, there was a he had fallen into a cult. He was extremely educated. Augustine was her son. And she found this priest who was equally educated, equally eloquent. And she came to him and she said, if you will just talk to my son, if you'll talk to my son, I know that he'll get it right. If you'll just sit down and you can, you can tell him the different arguments about Christianity and he'll listen, he'll listen to you. And he knew of him and he said, I'm not going to do it. She said, why? He said, because he's not ready to listen. And she pleaded with him. And she said, but please talk to him. In Confessions, the book that he later wrote, says that this priest got irritated with her. And he says, ma'am, I am not going to go talk to your son. He's not ready to listen. But then he said this, but with tears like yours, the Lord is not going to be able to resist. And she said that she took that as a mighty word from the Lord. It hit her like a bolt of lightning. What was he saying? You, you can talk and talk and talk to somebody, but until they're ready to receive, listen, it's just one verse that can do it. It's not, oh, they need to hear an hour-long sermon. If I could just get them to talk to this person. I've even had people with me, if they can just, they can talk to you. I think, they talk to me, I'm going to confuse them even more. It's going to be worse. I'm going to leave more upset. It's the timing of God. It's the timing of God. So God says to Jonah, I'm not asking you to go do a bunch of uh, stuff. I'm not asking you to give a lot of different words. All I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to simply go and preach this simple message. And I have even prayed over my own children. Listen, I have prayed... God, strike them with just even one verse. Lord, I'm powerless to do anything. But God, whether it's them or anybody else I'm praying for, God, you can use, you can use one verse, one moment of time, what you did with me, and the heart's ready. A.W. Pink was a, um, became a, a mighty man of God in the, in the 1900s. He is, he's dead now. But he was raised in a Christian home. His parents loved the Lord. His father loved the Lord. And yet he rebelled against the Lord. Just because somebody is raised in a Christian home does not mean that they're going to follow after the Lord. Listen, it's not the parents that can save. It's God who saves. But he says this, this book about his life, they grieved, parents grieved, they prayed, and they were not altogether silent. By the way, let your kids hear and you pray for them. Oh God, I pray for Tony. They're tiptoeing past your office or your bedroom, and they're hearing you. Oh, God, would you get a hold of so-and-so? 
God, would you touch little, little Joey? God, would you touch Joey? They hear you calling out to God. So A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink's parents, they prayed for him. And his father was a father who cared very much about his son. His father always waited up until his son returned from meetings. These were cult-like meetings. Late in the evening, and to Arthur's annoyance, often accompanied his good night. So his father, so can you imagine your son is, your son now who is an adult, and he was still living, young adult, very young, 18, 19, 20 years old, comes into the house, he's coming in at night, and he, there's dad. There's dad praying, there's dad waiting, and Arthur was annoyed at this. He was, he was bothered by this because whenever he would say goodnight his father, he would do it with some brief but telling word of scripture. So he comes in, he's just trying to get up to the stairs, up to bed. One such evening in the year 1908, 1908, as Pink hurried past his father and dashed upstairs to his room, the text which he received was, there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. As he shut the bedroom door, intending to do some work on a speech for an important annual meeting um, that was to take place on Friday evening of that same week, the text remained with him and so disturbed his concentration that the work was impossible. The story continues. Now, listen to this. AWP decided he was fatigued and would take a bath to relax. But during this process, all he could see mentally, so as he's trying to relax, as he's trying to take uh, a bath, all he could see was, there is a way that seemeth right. That verse just kept going over and over in his mind. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. Ooh, this is the power of the scripture. Amen? Can you say amen? This is the power of the scripture. So you have somebody you're praying for, don't give up. Don't give up. There's hope. You don't give up. You never know what verse is going to just capture somebody's attention. You say, but they're not even going to church. It's okay. God can get a hold of anybody anywhere. Anywhere. And so he is, uh, he's not reliant on getting them into a church building. So here he is. He's, he's trying to relax, but he can't. He keeps thinking about this. There is a way that seemeth right. Again, he returned to work on his speech, and all his mind brought forth was Proverbs 14, 12. He told us he could no longer reject the God of the Bible, and he began to cry unto the Lord in prayer, and convicted by the Holy Spirit and his power to bring a soul to see his lost condition and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. His early training had taught him about the Lord, so he's already trained. He knew about the Lord. But now, like Paul of old, was the appointment with a holy, sovereign God. For almost three days, he did not leave his room to join the family. But his father and mother prayed. And in late afternoon on the third day, Arthur Pink made his appearance, and his father said, Praise God, my son has been delivered. That's the power of God. That's the power of God. So all God says to Jonah is, I just want you to go and preach. And here's the message I want you to give. Forty days, the city's going to be destroyed. Just do it and let me take care of the rest. Amen? Just do it. May the word of God 
dwell richly in our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that sometimes you cause the tears to flow, but it's not just as a result of an emotional push. It's because you're at work within us. And Lord, we ask you that you would do something so powerful within our hearts and in our lives in our church. And we ask you, Lord, that uh, we would receive what you have for us. We would receive it. To as many as received him, he gave the right, John 1 says. And then we must keep receiving it. Keep receiving what you're doing in our lives. Keep receiving it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.